Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. Now today I bring you part two of the great conversation I had with Craig White. If we try to cultivate trust with every single human being in the organisation, we're just playing Mr. Nice Guy, aren't we? You know, sometimes it, the bridge is too far, of course. Massive mistake that leads to a lot of pain, Ben, in men and women, but mostly men, is regarding purpose and mission, comparing yourself to someone else. I would like people to recognise that nothing is ever in the way, it's on the way. In part one, we discussed his numerous roles at some of the highest performing levels there are and his journey through them. In this episode, we go into transcendental meditation, centering, flow states, the roles of breath, sound, touch and movement, and much, much more. But we start by talking about embodied learning, what it means, how it works, and as well as that sensation we've all felt, our gut feeling. There's so much to talk about here, Ben. It's such a huge, huge topic. And it's also a new field as well, especially in the realm of leadership, embodied leadership. I mean, let's talk about the level of, of science for a start. There's so much now studied around the heart brain. And there's so much studied around the gut brain and the communication between these three centers and how, you know, the heart brain is also, as well as communicating with the cognitive brain, it also has a, an intelligence of, it, of its own. It's the same with the gut. It's almost as if the gut has its own um, brain as well. And often the gut is the first to respond and it sends a message to the brain, not the opposite way around. And, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done in th these areas, but the gut, not only in some of the work done now in science, but also in ancient, ancient systems of yoga and, and other practices, that, you know, the gut's associated with our emotional center. You know, there's a lot in here where we kind of store some of the kind of emotions and, and the heart is, is often associated more with kind of intuition. It's almost as if the gut is like this kind of instinctual center and the heart is kind of this intuitive center and the brain's our kind of thinking center. So in theory, kind of embodying and opening kind of and deepening our relationship with our heart in theory can make us more loving, compassionate, intuitive connecting with the gut and opening up the gut and softening the gut and breathing into the gut and kind of, again, deepening our relationship with that center in theory can make us more instinctual and trust our gut a little bit more because we have, you know, we, we do have great instinct there, but if we can reconnect with these parts, we can effectively become a better decision maker in leadership. I, w I wonder as a coach, would you have a look if you had a player or an athlete that without wanting to, I know there's many reasons why you might have some pain in your stomach, but if you kind of unravel it a little bit and you look and that would be a signal for you just to investigate whether there's other stuff going on outside of what they might have eaten to create some some stress in their lives that's that's coming out in this way. Of course, and it's even more powerful if, if the club or the team are working with a trained nutritionist that is an expert in gut health, then it becomes even more powerful because the sports psych or the mental guy or the culture guy or the mindful guy is connecting with the nutritionist and the player. So yeah, 100%. Coming back to your question about embodied learning, and I mean, another maybe more simple way to look at it is, you know, we often talk about personality, Ben, and we've been conditioned to believe that our personality lives in our belief system and our thoughts. It doesn't. The personality, is, it lives inside of your body. Your body is, a, is a, an expression of your personality, 
And when we're growing up, you know, we model certain people that we love. We react to trauma in a certain way. We carry certain beliefs and our body shapes its kind of way of, of, of expressing in the world. So our body is a reflection of our personality. So a key practice that I teach now, which is a big part of what I, what I do, is centering. And what centering is, it's, there's so many ways to do it, Ben, but centering is a way to train your body to find neutrality and come away from, from, from the way it's been conditioned to respond. So centering might be something like, you connect with length, imagine someone's lifting you up here. You connect with width, imagine someone's pulling your shoulders out. Connect with the forward and back balance, find the center point. Locate in your body where you think you're holding tension. If you're conditioned to fight like I am, it's here and it's here and it's here. It might be different if you've been conditioned to run off or if, you, if you've been conditioned to freeze, you might freeze all over. We've all got different responses. Uh, a lot of us hold tension in, in the gut. So find out where you kind of carry tension and try and kind of soften, just soften with your attention, really. Kind of soften the eyes, soften the jaw, drop the jaw, soften the weight off the shoulders. Don't be so worried about uh, having a protruded belly. And then the final stage is just kind of imagine that you're breathing up and down, you're breathing up and then you're breathing down to ground you. So length, width, front and back centering, relax in the different areas of the body and then up and down breathing and then open your eyes. And when you get good at it, Ben, if I'm talking to you as a client and I've only got 40 seconds before I switch on Zoom, I can, I, I can just remember all those things in an embodied way, stand and I'm centered, like I'm centered. I'm neutral from any preconditioned responses. I'm not in unconscious drive. I'm in conscious choice. And then I promise you, if the clients practice that, when they're on, engaged with someone in some kind of connection, they'll be more present. They'll be able to listen. Even if they get triggered, it will be less of a reactive response just from doing something as simple as that. And if you want to add something onto that, you just breathe, you just connect with your breath, just bring your attention to your breath and just, yeah, just, just form that relationship. Imagine your breath is a long lost friend and you're just trying to make friends with it. And it could be done in a seating position as well. There must be a ripple effect there that there's other things that suddenly appear in that self-awareness. You've got choice. We think we've got choice, Ben, but a lot of the time we don't have, because our body has, has developed what's called somatic. Somatic just means body. Somatic markers and ways of responding. We think we've got choice, but we haven't. We're operating from preconditioned responses. And they are, we either learn to fight if we get triggered. We learn to run off. We learn to freeze and not say anything. Or we please and appease people. Those four areas of preconditioned response are, are, are something that I also work with with clients. And I help them to come away from that and find neutrality. I mean, with sportsmen, imagine teaching your players how to censor when they stood for the national anthem, you know, it, it, and, and just before they go out, before the kickoff, it, it, it enters any preconceived stuff or limiting beliefs that go on. More and more, and I'm sure you get this, you know, in supersized, athletes or coaches are looking for the answers to how they can get more into that state and they can calm down their anxiety and their worries because it's affecting their day-to-day -day and their performances. And whether that's not being able to get rid of 
something they've just done that's you know in, in the moment or whether it's the anxiety building into the week or then that leads into some months and from a coach's point of view it's pretty stressful for coaches that particularly in the professional sports where they might be brilliant operators and had a brilliant week and their team loses and the stress gets magnified and they need some help in just remaining centered you know even floor states i mean ultimately you could say that a floor state in a performance perspective is some kind of transcendental central state but the precursor to that is embodiment you're in the body you're not in the head you're totally in the body and it's like wow this is how i'm supposed to move this is how what i did when i was a kid there's nothing interfering here and then it's like boom, transcendent states this is amazing i've only had that flow state once as an athlete back and, and it wasn't even a big game or anything but i can now go straight back to whatever it was 1996 playing against northampton for cambridge university and picking a line off a back rower that from 80 meters out and i'm literally as you explain that to me now i feel i'm inside that body and that is exactly the feeling that i had that that zone where everything just seems perfect and you know you, you feel like you've got rockets on your feet and it's just a moment of of utter elation where you, yeah and i can only remember getting it once craig uh, you've probably had it a lot more times than that ben you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of tools we can use as well. I mean, this might be useful for coaches as well, but also anybody. Like, there's so many reasons that we have to start to inhabit the body. But we could also say that from a coaching perspective, there are certain tools that we can use. Our intention is very important. You know, if we have some kind of intention to be in the body, then the link between the brain and the body comes together. Our attention is everything. Where you put your attention determines really kind of what comes next you know if your attention's out there your attention's out there but if your attention's here or your attention's in your heart or your attention's on your hands when you're going to pass or on, on your your hip shift when you're going to pass you're probably going to be more successful because you're in the body the other tools of embodiment are breath so breath is the obvious tool of embodiment you know open your breath watch for how your breath can shut down whenever you hit a preconditioned nervous system response Sound is also useful as well. Connecting with your own inner sounds. Touch is very, very useful. You know, connecting with different ways of touch and, and feeling like you can feel the energy through your hands, exploring body work and also movement. So in a lot of the sessions that I do with leaders, yeah, we're talking about vision and purpose and mission and all that, of course. But there's also a lot of movement. We're, we're, we're moving into certain movement patterns that we've we've suppressed and we've not stepped into before and it might sound a little bit out there but if you've been conditioned to be totally linear and all you do is run cycle and lift weights you're probably someone that has a very limited mindset very stubborn this is the way i do it i can't go outside of that but if you then explore different ways of moving, not only your movement, maybe you get into dance or you go to some kind of embodiment kind of movement practice and you try different ways of breathing. All of a sudden, only are you kind of moving in different ways and your body's more relaxed and tension-free, you've opened your mind up a little bit more. So non-linear practices, you know, some of the stuff I've done is five rhythms, ecstatic dance, unwinding different forms of kind of Tantric yoga, which is sometimes a little bit more nonlinear, those are kind of really were some of the edge lies. And it's been an edge for me, Ben, because if you said to me, you know, find your edge, go and run a marathon, 
well, it's not really an edge for me because I'm, I'm like you. I mean, I, I was raised with physical training, but but if you ask me to go and dance or move in that sort of wall, that's an edge, and that's where the growth is really. Breathing, I have to be softer. Touch, I have to learn to kind of accept more gentle, flowing touch, and and it's a journey, Ben. You know what I mean? And not a lot of coaches want to go there. The breathing, I'd like to touch upon as well because. Um... We were talking off off air about Alan Watts, who will have some links. I'm sure we'll find some links that will go in the show notes. And he was talking about breathing in one of his lectures. You know how you, it's one of those classics, whether you you think it's something that's that you're doing or it's just happening to you, and you know, and that's your your view on life. Of you know, and I found I just made me think and stop for a while. And I've had lots of discussions and conversations with athletes recently around their breathing and their awareness of it. So a centre forward, you know, when he's waiting and he's looking at wh- where the opportunities are, wh- what's happening with his breathing? And is he thinking about how it can help him both be more calm and also be ready to pounce on the opportunities? And then what does he do in those first few moments? And n- none of that's not, you know, his answer would be, it's just happening to me, isn't it? And the answer, I'm sure Craig, you'd say is, well, it isn't, is it? There's some work, huge amounts of work you can do in your breathing that's just going to help well, most areas of your life? You know, it, it's the go-to, really, to regulate the nervous system. You know, it's the, it's, it's, it, the respiratory system is really the only other system that has some kind of regulation over the nervous system. All the other systems are totally under unconscious automatic control, but you can have some kind of control over the breathing. So if you think about it, if, you know, if you can calm the breathing down, it will have a calming effect on the nervous system. If you can ramp the breathing up, it can ramp the nervous system up if, if, if you need to ramp it up. It's such a regulator of the nervous system. And it's also, in more esoteric language, the bridge between the heart and the mind, that the body and the mind. So it's such an important tool. And yes, you like to get to an automatic response from an athlete perspective where things are happening automatically. But if there's a limitation, if the guy's tense, tense up when he's kicking a ball or he realizes that he tenses up a lot in the game and it affects the way you think he's thinking, then there's work to be done. But it's such a vast area, Ben, in, in the realm of self-development, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's fascinating from a yoga perspective, you know, there's a lot of calming breaths, but from an embodied perspective, a trauma release perspective, there's lots of deep, really kind of deep work that involves intensive breathing that really opens the body up and opens repressed parts and, Sometimes tears come and sometimes anger comes and you need a really skilled practitioner to do that. And from a performance perspective, perspective, you know, there's there's a lot of research out there now around breath holds and, you know, especially on the exhalation and how we can become more kind of efficient at um, using carbon dioxide and resultantly carrying more oxygen around the tissues. So it's vast. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of people out there that use it effectively in sport at the moment. And a lot of the coaches are frightened of it because they've never felt it. And they don't know how to sell it as well. You know, I I did a lot of breath work with the Uruguay team, but never once, Ben, did I say to them, we're just going to do some breath work. You know, I did a lot of yoga things with them. I never said to them, we're just going to do yoga. It's just part of the program and it's just... It's just in my toolbox. We did a lot of visualization, but I never said we're going to visualize. There's loads of science behind it. We just do it. But you have to be confident to do that. And you have to have felt it yourself. And then it will just 
it, it's just weaved into your toolbox as a coach. Do you talk a lot about morning routines to your clients? It's part of my work, really, Ben. Um, apart from the retreats and my private coaching, I also run groups. And um, I actually met with a group this morning at 6 a.m. So I, I, I sometimes run a 21-day program, and it's 21 days at 6 in the morning. And we're doing these practices every day. And then on the fourth day, we're checking in and we're sharing our experiences and what's going well for us, what's challenging. So we're talking as well. And at the moment, I'm just taking a group over 12 weeks where we meet at 6 a.m. on a Monday and a Friday. And we have like two-week themes. We've just finished the theme of self-communication. And then outside of the group every morning, they share their own practices on the, on the WhatsApp group. And the practice at the moment is a combination of centering and what I call mirror work, where they're looking into the mirror every morning and they're creating a relationship with themselves and they're journaling what comes up and, and they're using touch and they're trying to emit kind of more loving communication with themselves through a mirror. So, yeah, um, the morning practices is quite important for me, but it, it's definitely a game changer because when you wake up early, your nervous system is it's, it, it's primed it's in a state where it's not yet stepped into like active beta state. It's still kind of theta alpha. So it's very receptive. So it's a beautiful time to retrain your nervous system. The other thing to say about a morning routine is it doesn't matter what you do, as long as what you do is a practice of attention. I do have cold showers every morning. And I know that's something, you know, on your social, you've got a few videos of, of, of immersion and cold. And uh, I'm a big believer in it, but I think it can be misunderstood. And, you know, from somebody, again, that, you know, everyone will listen int attentively to it. Cold water for you, you know, what does it do? That's another great question. And I'm not going to complicate it, but I am going to relate it to a shift that's happened in me and, and relate it to different needs within all of us. So... A lot of it was I use metaphorically. When I use it with the clients, I don't just get my clients to go in the water. That's just a waste of time. It's like, what does this mean to you? What's your challenge at the moment in your life? How can you create a metaphoric story here so that when you get in the water and your body feels it, not only is it feeling something, but it's relating it to a future vision or letting go of something or stepping into a future self or cultivating confidence. You feel it in an embodied way. But sometimes I also used to use cold on days where I wanted to, you know, connect with my warrior energy. But now I use it in a very different way. I don't have cold showers every day. I'm more intuitive. And if I get into the cold now, because of where I think my work is needed on myself, which is more like loving and gentle and feminine access, I'll do, use cold in a more loving way. So there's different ways of using it, Ben. But I love metaphors because they relate us to feelings and they get us in the body and you know, there has to be a meaning behind everything that we do for me. I've got some questions down here about the different qualifications that you have as well and where you use those as far as, far as your toolbox is concerned. Is there, is there one qualification that rises above the rest or do you just pick on them for different things? I'm a bit of a rebel, so I don't always go to mainstream. I mean, I did my BSc and my MSc and stuff like that, but in relation to cultivating my toolbox... I tend not to just go for one thing. I like to go for different things. So, you know, I've done yoga trainings, I've done meditation trainings, I've trained in what's called psychodynamic role play, which is called shadow work, where 
again, you're metaphorically creating certain scenarios of what happened in the past and changing the story behind them. And I've trained in breath work and I've, I've trained online breath work. I've trained breath work from a yoga perspective. I'm now learning to use something called uh, centered connected breathing, which is used in a kind of way to kind of release tension in the body and potential trauma release. Um, it's all, it's, it's just, it never stops. I just love learning. The shadow work stuff sounds fascinating. I'd love to know a little bit more about that, Craig. Yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating. Um, it's more fascinating because it's all unconscious, you know, our, the concept of the shadow, it's, it's the hidden, denied, suppressed, repressed part of our psyche and behavior that wasn't acceptable growing up and we stuffed it down. You know, it creates that Jekyll and Hyde syndrome. It's like it creates the mask and what's behind the mask. And we're all different there. And for me, growing up, it was very much in order for me to feel safe and protected here, I'm the warrior. But it suppressed the nurturing side and the forgiving side and the accepting side and the non-linear side and the, 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 the timeless side, not the one that's obsessed with time. And so we're all different. Sometimes we can be the opposite. You know, you might have been raised in a house of five women and, and you, you, you kind of suppress the warrior part of you. And it's, it's, it's about bringing that online and admitting that sometimes it's okay to be angry and sometimes it's okay to be this commanding presence. And so the shadow lives in our unconscious, really. You know, a lot of what we do on the retreats that I run, we do activities that actually they can expose our shadows or they can bring insights around, oh, wow, yeah, maybe I've suppressed that. Oh, I wonder why I suppressed that. It's okay to show that here. It wasn't okay to show it when I was a kid because my dad would have clipped me around the head or my mum would have told me that I'm being a sissy, but I can show it here. So shadow work is about exposing, um, you know, what we hid away and denied and suppressed. And, and those insights, Ben, they can come up with psychodynamic role play. They can come up in a yoga class. They can come up when you access stillness. They can come up when me and you look into each other's eyes. They can come up during a massage session. You know, some of this, it's quite mysterious. You're also a qualified hypnotherapist. Have you ever used those tools to start to accelerate or bring out the stuff that you're helping all your clients with? I mean, I'm using it all the time. I mean, without even knowing it. I mean, the word hypnotherapy is misconstrued, really. You know, people think it's, it's, it's kind of what we see on stage and changing the way that somebody behaves in an instant. And I mean, there may be people that have that talent around that can really kind of get into the psyche and, and affect change in an immediate way. But for me, we're hypnotizing ourselves all the time, Ben. You know, just before we go to sleep, we're hypnotizing. When we're driving a car, we're hypnotized because we're just on autopilot. And, you know, when we're kind of, when we have a aha moment, it's never when you're doing something. It's never when you're thinking. It's always in a state of hypnosis, really. You're, you're kind of, you're not anywhere. You're just in that transcendental space of stillness. By using breath awareness, we hypnotize ourselves. We shift from that beta state of brain activity, that busyness, and we, the brain calms down into more kind of alpha and theta and become a bit kind of spacey and, and, and centered and, oh, wow, this feels nice. So we're doing it all the time. It, you know, you stir into your, your daughter's eyes, you become hypnotized, you look at your cat, you light a fire. You know, it, it's really um, a practice of, of, of soft attention control, really. 
One of the other things that you talked about in communicating with clarity, your listening skills will have evolved hugely over the last however many years as a practitioner. Where are they now and, and do you actively practice them? Uh, so regarding listening skills, I'm not perfect. Sometimes I get caught up in old patterns, but most of the time I'm good. Um, in the work I do with, with coaches, that there's a, we do a module on listening skills and there's some direct work around clean listening and the elements of listening. I've, I've heard you speak about this before, you know, on the different stages of listening and active listening and where to put your focus and connecting with your breath and stuff like that. But in, in relation to, I'm actually just doing some work with a guy in Ireland now and we're on the module of listening and it's, it, he's, it's his Achilles heel and he's recognised it. So as well as practising with another person and making mistakes and feeling into that and reporting back to me, he's also doing a lot of other stuff. Now, for me, the essence of listening is about being in your body. So he's doing a lot of meditation, he's doing a lot of breathing practices, he's doing a lot of things like body scanning. And so that when he arrives, he can call on an anchor or a trigger and he's in his body. Like if, I, if, I, if I'm coming to you and I want to listen to you and my attention is in my head, I'm not going to listen because I'm my thought processes are here. My thought processes are coming and going. I might want to try and fix you. I'm thinking what you're going to say and I'm not listening to you. But if I have the tools to sink in and be in my body and focus on my breath and even put my hand on my belly without you knowing it, all of a sudden... I'm actively listening because active listening means listening in your body. And I sometimes say to clients, imagine you've got a big ear on your heart uh, and you're, you're listening with your breath and you're listening with your heart. There's, there's much more to listening and communicating than words and mental constructs. The body mapping stuff I'm aware of, but to our listeners, would you mind just like in 30 seconds explaining what that is? I mean, it's just, it's very, very simple. And sometimes my, some of my clients do it and they think what's actually happening here it requires a practice. It's basically just shifting our attention and focus, Ben. You know, we, we can't help it. We're in this world of social media and technology and technology and, and, and distractions and screens and the, our educational system is responsible too for really making us believe that everything is here, the centre of excellence, the centre of solutions. It's all in our head. Plus the trauma of life often forces us to disassociate from our body. You know, maybe in traumatic experiences growing up, Ben, we feel that in the body. And then our ego says, I don't want to feel that again. <laughs> I'll focus more in the head. I'll become strategic. I'll learn things. I'll pretend I'm, I'll try and bamboozle people with my knowledge. And, but the wisdom's here. There's so much wisdom in here. And when we get into the body, you know, it, joy comes, tears can come, anger can come, bliss can come. Um, and, and what body scanning is, it's just a way to shift attention, to shift attention, to keep shifting attention. So it's, it's basically, you know, you just sit there, Ben, and scan through the body. You can scan on one body part. You can take a while to scan through different parts of, of your body from head to toe. You can, you can combine the breath with body scanning. You can bring in an intention and a, an emotion that you want to feel in certain parts of the body. You can bring a vision into it. You can really breathe deeply into the way. You can bring a color into it. There's so many ways to do it. But with practice, not only do you learn to feel again what, it, what it's like to inhabit the body, you also become a, like a scientist of your body. You might notice that certain parts of your body are 
open and certain parts of your body are closed. And you might realize that with the power of your breath, you can open a certain part of your body. So it just kind of opens us up to really to the wisdom of the body. Do you know, when I started to do men's work, Ben, where we, we kind of, you know, we bring groups of men together, a lot of my work and a lot of the work in the retreats was sat in circle talking because that's what I thought men's work was. But as we've moved through the years, I would say that in our retreats now, probably about 30% of the retreat is talking and sharing and opening up. And 70% of the retreat is embodied practices designed to get us into the body. And when you get into the body, it's like, wow. And it's, you can't, it's not something, embodiment can't be conceptualized by the mind. It has to be felt. Even some of the work I'm starting to do with clients as well, I'm, I'm bringing a little bit more embodiment into it. The reason that I'd started to do that in the retreats, Ben, one, because of my own journey, but also because I realized that I was doing men's groups online and in person. And what I was realizing is like six months later, the guy's bringing the same shit to what he brought in the first week. So I've got that problem with my wife and I've got this. And, and it's because every session was just mental, 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 mental. So sometimes now when we do our, our circle work with men, we, we do embodied work, we get into the body, we breathe, we move, we let out steam, you know, we, we release anger, we release joy, we, we body tap, we jump, we move, we move, we move in non-linear movements, which is hard to do for a lot of men because we've been conditioned to do this and do this. And anything outside of that is a risk. It's absolutely fascinating. If you don't mind, maybe a really quick summary of body tapping and how that can help. Yeah, I mean, it's just, again, it's just a, it's just a way of communicating with your nervous system, really, Ben. And, 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 and even with body tapping, it's, it's, you could say it's, it's a message to say, hey, put your attention here, put your attention here, put your attention here. So when I'm tapping with my clients to kind of get them embodied, there has to be a message behind it. It's like, okay, when you're tapping your body, what are you telling your body? So it might be in a dialogue of, you're good enough, you're good enough, you're good enough just the way you are. I accept you just the way you are. I love you. You know, you've got the tools. So there's a message behind it. And again, it's just, it's just that palpation. Even as a coach, if someone's lifting weights, you know, using palpation and using touch, it's a way for the body to remember something. So tapping is a way for the body to remember something. And you can influence that by the message and the intention that comes through that. And, and again, tapping is a, as a form of touch. So to intensify the message in the nervous system, you combine the touch with verbal message, with sound, with breath, you know, it, it becomes more intensive. Yeah. I've done, I mean, I've done some tapping um, linked in with the, the rapid eye movement therapy to bring out some trauma. And um, I found it really, really useful, actually. So I can see, how, again, how you can combine uh, those. Craig, when I, when I, we've, we've unpacked so much stuff around the different tools and I don't know why I think I don't think of James Haskell in a bad way around tools but as soon as you say tools I know how much he loves his JCB diggers and everything else and I would also tell our listeners go and listen to James James and Craig's conversation on his podcast because it was a it was a really entertaining one and and James you know at the end of it talked about you know 
we've only just started scratching on the surface here. Uh, and it, we talked on air how it's easy if we've got a rugby background to kind of get into that and not into the, uh, as you would say, the juicy stuff that, that can follow on from that. Do you ever feel when you're with a, a, anybody you're working with, and you might even be doing it subconsciously with people you don't work with, but you have, you know, you're, you're, you're having conversations with that you're a little bit of a detective because you've got you're looking at them and trying to find ways of how they can become a better version and their best version and consistent, and they want you to help them with that. Do you find yourself like thinking of it like you're a detective, like you might use these things or this thing, or how does that work in your head? Mate, I'm just really honest here. I'm a detective and I'm also a manipulator because I want to help people. I'm not manipulating them because I want to do them harm. I'm detecting, I'm strategically manipulating them to do something in a certain way because I think, I think I can help them. You know, sometimes as coaches, we think, oh, you can't manipulate people. Well, one of the presuppositions in, in NLP is that we're always manipulating people. It's really about what the intention is behind that. And if, if the intention is one of love, then we're doing our best. There's going to be links to the Men Without Masks and the retreats because I can see the value to this. And, you know, I, I hope at some point in the future I manage to get myself onto, onto one of them. You've planted the seed now. I'm going to chase you. I'm going to be a detective. I'm going to find your family. I'm going hey, to get you. Put- <laughs> I'm going to go through the back door. Oh, I'm sure Michelle will probably be saying he needs a long retreat. Um, <laughs> um, when you have have um the retreats obviously that there's a real willingness now in our world of elite sports when you're trying to manipulate or nudge behaviors with athletes and coaches particularly with athletes they really don't seem to gen- and this is a generalization but they won't open themselves up to any real change until they get dropped or they get injured and you know then they're just a bit more open now i'd love to reverse engineer that a bit more so that that's not the case and that they're constantly looking for that so in a professional environment where it's day-to-day how would you influence their thinking their behaviors so that everyone's looking for this constant improvement that's a really great question the first thing i want to say in answering that question is something that i really believe in ben is that let's say i'm addressing the group and i probably would address the group first if i fully show up completely open myself up and show what I truly believe in, I guarantee that a lot of the group will feel me, respect my vulnerability and feel some kind of connection with me, right? And connection is everything. In relation to individual people, individual players, I like what you said about reverse engineering because if change is here, right, and if, if learning is here, and changes here and performance enhancement is here. If we come all the way back, none of that can exist if there isn't rapport between two or more individuals. So probably the greatest piece of advice I can give to a coach, if if your key didn't open the door, you have to come back and ask yourself, does this player trust me? And do I trust this player? Because if there's mutual trust, that's when the magic can happen. But if there isn't, you either have to try a different key or you recognize someone within your staff that has a greater connection with that player and you help him to indirectly turn the key. That's the best way I can answer that, Ben, without complicating things. 
if you and I ask 10 coaches, please rate your trustability within the group out of 10, they'll all put 10. But it's not true. We're not trusted by everybody, you know, and we have to feel into that. And we won't know if we're trusted by everybody if we're just driving our self from our cognitive mind. We have to get into our body and we'll feel. Trust is a feeling, Ben. Trust in a group is free, is a feeling. When you won the Olympic Games with Fiji, it's like, oh my God, this feels like my family. It, it's, a, it's in your body, Ben. No, you're right. You're totally trusting everyone. You know when they're not around you or in between games that they're doing the right thing and you feel this very clear moment of of comfort. There's comfort and joy in it for sure because you, you just can rely on them and you know that, you know that they... they like Oscar, I interviewed Osea Klinasau um, in one of the earlier shows, and he said we had this feeling that we would we would do anything for for Ben. We would you know rob a bank if he asked us to because we illicitly just completely trusted him. But it was the it was exactly the same the other way round for us as coaches and management with the players that we we're in a position where I know they're gonna I trust them and. It's a quite a joyful feeling. Yeah. And you can't do a you can't do a psychometric on trust. It's a feeling. And when, when you can start to embody feelings, this is, this is a real golden moment. When you can start to get into your body more and access more feelings and emotions, then your intuitive becomes more of a trusting tool. But if you're in your head, you can't trust your intuition because your intuition lives here. And so you think when, people, when a coach, let's get stay on the coaches, when a coach becomes, feels more embodied, the first thing probably is they'll realise that, no, that it's not a 10 out of 10 for trust and that they'll be more aware of that and then they'll have more awareness on how they can become more trusting both ways. When you get, in, when you get embodied and you can switch on, re- retrain your intuition, you can read people. You can read people down to the T. You know, you know there's an inner knowing. This guy trusts me. This guy doesn't trust me. You just know. Do you think on that trust piece that there'll be certain people that you'll – you make a decision that, okay, I've got a feeling that they don't trust me, but I'm okay with that. Yeah. That, you know, the majority, you, you want to create a trusting environment, but there might be one or two where you just need to have the awareness that, all right, this is not going to change. Yeah, of course. Because, because we, I mean, if we, if we try to cultivate trust with every single human being in the organisation, we're just playing Mr. Nice Guy, aren't we? I mean, you know, sometimes it, the bridge is too far, of course. It does depend on the person, doesn't it, Ben? You know what I'm saying? It it does depend on the relationship with that person. And if you're a coach, he's placing the team and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. I've got one more nugget. So it's great today. There's so much out there to kind of heal and grow and step into our potential as therapists, as coaches. And But, mate, when we lived in communities, we didn't need any of that stuff because in the community, we knew our place, we had self-awareness, we had an identity, we were supported, we were challenged, we had a group where we could sit in circle and share our problems, we had a sense of purpose, but we were so far away from that, that that's why the personal development self-help space is so rich, but it's rich because of deficiencies in community, so that's why I created Men Without Masks, because we've created a community for men to grow, because we need community. And maybe one-on-ones is a step towards that, but ultimately we all have to return to community for that sense of belonging, sense of purpose, sense of being seen and heard and that 
embodied feeling of, oh, wow, I belong here. And it's, I don't want to commit suicide because I belong here. And one of the other things you've got on your website is a free ebook that I suggest everybody goes to to Craig's website. And again, we'll give of all those links in the show in the show notes. And you've got the twelve secrets and twelve actions from those secrets. Um, and I was I was I was reading through them uh, um, earlier this week, and I could talk about. I mean, we could have a whole podcast on number four. He re- you know rest deeply because you know we could talk about sleep and everything around that. But if I jump to number nine. He knows his mission. So the mission is clear and you walk your talk. The question I guess I've got is, is it okay if that mission for people changes? Ben, what a big topic this is. And um, there's so much written about this and I don't profess to be the world's expert, but on my own journey, I used to, and I know this happens with many, happens with some of my clients. A lot of men, and I used to fall into this trap, Ben, I used to think that I've only got a purpose or I've only got a mission if it's clearly written on a piece of paper and it's put in my office and that's my mission. Yes, I've got a mission. Like a lot, and a lot of people, a lot of men I work with, they think I have to have a documented purpose and and mission. I have to, I've not got that. And also a lot of men think my mission has to be in my job. My mission has to be in my job. And a huge, massive mistake that leads to a lot of pain, Ben, in men and women, but mostly men is, Regarding purpose and mission, comparing yourself to someone else. In relation to mission, what I've learned is that if I've got an embodied sense of mission, it's a feeling that, do you know what? Yeah, this is worth living for. You know, this is worth investing my time in. This is worth making a sacrifice for. Let's go for it. Then I'm on purpose. I'm on mission. And that doesn't have to be in vocation, Ben. It might be that my number one driver is... If I've got five kids, probably, unless I'm skillful, my job is just a means to earn money to serve these kids. But my purpose in life, until the kids get to a level of age, is in this domain. It's like, this is where I get my sense of purpose for. Forget me, mate, down the road that's got a million quid selling Ford cars. That's his purpose. He's not getting any kids. This is my purpose. Ah, okay. I get it now. That's worth living and dying for. Right, I don't have a problem going to work. I can earn more money doing that and that. I'll get through it because, whoa. So it's important to know that your purpose is not only in vocation. Your sense of purpose might be to uh, take me six months off from work and, and meditate. But it's just that sense, really. You know, if, if a man doesn't have a sense that is on purpose, most of the time, Ben, it's because he's comparing himself to someone else nearly all the time. So it's my job as a coach to help them to actually uncover that you do have a purpose what would you like people to take away from these two conversations that we've had the importance of learning to trust your body more do you know what ben i encourage coaches to you know start to try some of these practices of of embodied meditations and and breath work and maybe some yogic practices you know and instead of reading books about embodiment just try different things you know, even body scanning, body tapping, just kind of start to shift your attention more inside of your body and see what happens. So the first one is you've got to start to point your attention this way and start to kind of reconnect with your own body so that you can reconnect with the body and the feeling of someone else. 
And I guess the second one would be, um, I would like people to recognize that nothing is ever in the way, it's on the way. The way you perceive your life is only one side of the equation. Now, in any event, in any situation, in any perception, there's always two sides. So if you find yourself wallowing in, in the negative side, and you might have genuine reasons to do that, pop across to the other side and try to ask yourself, okay, what opportunities are here? What support is here? How can this shape me for the better? How can I take advantage of this? There is so much for all to take away from these chats with Craig, improving how we communicate, understand and relate, creating trust and rapport with others and being able to directly or indirectly turn the keys. But perhaps the biggest takeaway is that we should never stop learning. Now, Craig is world class in what he does, but he's always striving to get better and to know more to help those who he works with. I particularly enjoyed the discussion around taking away the focus from just being in your head to concentrating and listening to the body, as well as the point he made about nurturing the community around you too to help everyone, including yourself, grow. Another big takeaway has got nothing to do with anyone else. There is so much that you can just let happen to you or you can drive yourself. Our basic foundations of sleeping and eating and breathing and day-to-day chores and skills are good examples of this. Breathing happens to you, but you can also learn how to breathe more effectively and understand the associated benefits. I often think about driving as another example of this. How many times have you just got somewhere without even really thinking, been in that autopilot mode? Of course, look, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's all the time, then in my view, you're not making those foundations as strong as you can and work to their maximum effect for you. Now, in sport, the equivalent of that example is kicking or passing or lifting a weight or running an interval. In all our lives, it's listening just to answer, but not to fully understand. Now, the examples can go on and on and on, but the process is the same. Do you let the act control you or do you control the act? This is not about overthinking anything, but simply being present and embodying your personal thinking, producing better outcomes. Now, all the tools and views Craig gave are here to help with that. If you're being in the present more, in your body more, then I'm pretty sure you will also realise that there are things you are doing that are taking, not giving you energy, that are not playing to your strengths and are not seeing others as you would like. Now, the ripple bounces into all sorts of other realms that can just make you more self-aware. You don't need me or Craig to bang on to you about it simply by being more aware and being more in the present, getting out of your head, well, you'll see the solutions yourself. Produce your own wisdom. Craig and I, again, mentioned a lot of resources in this show, and I'll reference and link all of them and more in the show notes that are available at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast, and in the show description on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. His Men Without Masks organisation is also mentioned and the link will be in the show notes. But why not hit Craig up on LinkedIn to find out more too? 
Cheers for all the Apple reviews and ratings. I love to hear from all of you. You can also contact me through social media and on my website. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening.